So good morning, everybody. My name is Colin Rawlins from Lloyd's Register. I'll be moderating this panel around the fascinating subject of fleet renewal. Where's the time? Um, just before we start, I know there's been a musical theme to uh, some of the uh, panels so far. Um, I wanted to just add to that by saying that uh, I'm actually won't be able to attend any of the um, functions tonight because I'm actually going to a rock concert which I booked many months ago for a band called The Darkness, which some of you may have heard of. Um, and there is a connection to that. Um, one of our most favorite, famous songs was I Believe in a Thing Called Love. And um, we're going to try and see if we can believe in a thing called fleet renewal on this panel. So with no further ado, I'd just like to introduce the panelists. First of all, to my left, Philippos Prokopakis, who uh, joined Danaus Shipping Company in 2012. Uh, currently holds the position of commercial director, but I think I've been told on, on good authority that soon to be chief commercial officer of the group holding company. So congratulations, Philippos. Thank you, Colin. Um, to Philippos's left, we have Frederick Pinn, uh, who joined Mask Tankers in 2013 and is now, man since last year, managing director of a green tech business founded by Mask Tankers called Njord. Then to Frederick's left, we have Simeon Pariaros, who has over 20 years' experience in the maritime industry. He served as Chief Administrative Officer for Eurosea since 2007 and Eurodry since 2008, following the spin-off. To Simeon's left, last but not least, Clemens Tupfer, uh, well known to many of you, or most of you, I think, in the room, certainly in the Hamburg shipping industry and there beyond. Uh, Clemens joined his father's company in 1999, um, Top for Transport, and uh, has been there ever since, managing director focusing on the MPP, heavy lift, and short sea markets. So, with no further ado, no more introductions, uh, we're going to jump straight into the first question. Um, and it's an observation, first of all. We do, uh, and I think this is no surprise to anybody, we certainly seem to be looking at a multi-fuel future. Um, so the question, first of all, to Philippos on my left is, do you see an equal spread, Philippos, uh, across LNG, methanol, ammonia, or other fuels, for example, or does one particular fuel stand out for you as having the most potential? First of all, thank you, Colin. Thank you, uh, Mr. Bernard, for having me here. Uh, well, this is a million-dollar question, and if I knew the answer, I would be a very rich man. Uh, we do uh, see uh, going forward that obviously we're going to be looking at a multi-fuel environment and uh, that, would, that would include uh, fossil fuels as we know it now, methanol, ammonia, uh, definitely part of the mix as well as LNG. But uh, the fact remains is that the IMO has uh, specific targets towards decarbonization. The industry has to work towards these targets and ultimately we have to find the best solution for it. We all know that uh, LNG is an intermediate solution. It doesn't solve the problem, really. Uh, it's, still a, it's still fossil uh, and still has an issue with the methane slip. So that's, that's an issue there. And obviously for the rest of the fuels, the issue is actually sourcing. Um, we do see efforts from, uh, especially from our clients, the liner companies, uh, trying to source, for example, good quantities of green methanol. Uh, but however, in order to do that and how green that may be uh, and the quantities being sourced for the future, uh, 
that is very big of a question mark. So yes, I believe definitely it's going to be multi-fueled going forward. Um, but to what extent and in what spreads and what will be the percent of, of each, um, it's hard to say. Definitely a big part of it will still be fossil, in my opinion, for some years to come. Okay, Philippos, thank you for that. Frederick, um, what's your view? Same question. Yes, please. So I think you will see an exploration for sure. And I, I very much agree with Philippos on that. It will be a mix and we will see over the years to come what is the, the right mix. And we won't have one final answer. Uh, and I think we're lucky in the sense that some owners, they have taken the opportunity to take a bet uh, and, and, uh, and start with the, uh, the, the construction without necessarily having the infrastructure in place. Um, that's, a, that's a bold move, but it is also required. Otherwise, we won't see what will work and we won't start building the, uh, the, uh, the, the production accordingly. So no demand, no, uh, no production out there, no supply. Uh, so I think that's a bold move. And for the rest, I think there's a lot who are then waiting and seeing to see what are then the outcomes of the different uh, uh, trials, what works, what doesn't, uh, in terms of safety, in terms of price, in terms of uh, supply. And, uh, and then we will see the, the industry uh, reflect accordingly. But it will be a mix, for sure. Interesting, Frederick. Um, so on that basis, what you seem to be saying is that a lot of the dual fuel, say, methanol vessels that have been ordered uh, so far, you see them running on conventional fuel for some time? Uh, I, I think we'll see it both, yes. Uh, but I, I also think that in order for us to actually progress with this transition, they will start uh, running on on, uh, on methanol, for instance. And I think many of the, uh, the ones who have made the bet and started building these vessels, they have also somehow invested in the supply chain around methanol. Uh, so it will also be in their interest to actually burn the methanol that they've built the vessels for. Yep. Okay, thank you. Just moving on to uh, Clements. Same question, actually, Clemens. What's your view? Well, my view is that I think it's going to be uh, challenging to get the green uh, methanol. Um, and uh, there's going to be methanol around. But uh, actually, I uh, read somewhere that when you, when you burn um, the gray or the blue methanol, it's actually more CO2 uh, emissions. So um, you have to get the green one. Otherwise, uh, there's nothing, nothing done and nothing learned. So... Um, it will be multi-fuel um, thing, but it will be for many, many, many. It's 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 far away. Uh, we don't have enough uh, green energy out there to produce the green fuels, um, and then it makes no sense uh, to use it. So, um, you know, for for the likes of Maersk, um, I understand that they have a demand next year for seven percent of their cargo to go uh, CO2 neutral. And it means 93% of, of the customers are not willing to pay for it as well. So um, that's just on the liner side, which is very much, you know, uh, customer driven and, and, and it's more in the public eye. Um, so I'm sure that for many other owners uh, in the bulk market, for example, the demand for CO2 neutral transportation is, is going to be less than 7%. So, you know. So yeah, interesting, Clemens. Thanks for that. I mean, uh, I suppose one other thing we can't forget is that we don't exist in isolation as a shipping industry. We're talking about competition for green methanol from way beyond just the shipping industry. Yeah. Um, finally, to Simeon. What's your view on this, Simeon? 
I certainly agree that in the next couple of decades there's going to be a mix uh, in the fuels that the industry uses. Uh, I think the dominant role will still be with, uh, with oil, but uh, with ships that burn essentially 40% less than what the conventional ships burn today. I mean, uh, but the, the, the end game has to be something that produces zero CO2 or at least uh, something close to that. And the only thing that can produce that is hydrogen if it's... If it's used, uh, if it's green, if it's produced with uh, from green electricity, so the key here is to be able to produce abundant green electricity. If we reach that point, then we will be able to say there's going to be a, a, a fuel which probably is going to be hydrogen. But we're far away from that. We need lots of investment in research and development of uh, hydrogen cells, and also we need a lot of money to be spent on green electricity. I think uh, on the second part, the, the world is going to the right direction, especially Europe is meeting its targets, and uh, they will be able to produce enough green electricity to be able to, to work on a fuel that actually makes sense. Because all the other uh, things that we're discussing, like ammonia, LNG, uh, methanol, all these solutions do not actually fix the problem. So... Yeah, for the next couple of decades, I think the market will, will, will test all these alternative fuels until hopefully we reach a point where we can use a really clean fuel. Okay, thank you, Simeon. Um, uh, has anybody got any more comments about the, uh, the type of fuel mix before we move on to the next question? Uh, there's one, one fuel, for example, that we haven't mentioned, um, which is an interesting one in Germany. Uh, is nuclear. Has anybody um, looked into this, got any particular views on it? I'm just curious. Well, um, I, I didn't look into it, but um, there's, uh, we had it last year uh, on the Capital Link uh, with Martin Stopford uh, promoting molten salt uh, reactors. And um, that is, I think, something where there's a lot of hope uh, into into that segment. Uh, so, um, as, as uh, Simos just said, you know, the fuel for the future, you know, that's not going to be a fuel. It's a different different kind of uh, uh, energy source. Um, but uh, if you if you read about that a little bit, um, and and outside of shipping as well, for the energy production, I think molten salt is is something which has a lot of promises. Yeah. But maybe it's coming. You know, I think Martin Stopford said last year it's it's something for mid 30s. You know, so we are more than 10 years away from that. That would pretty much fit with what, uh, what our uh, experts within Lloyd's Register also believe, Clemens, yeah. Um, but I have a question on that field. Do, do we think that there are enough people in the world to be able to handle a nuclear reactor within commercial shipping? I mean, it sounds like a solution. Personally, I'm not against nuclear power, but how can you install a, nucle a small nuclear reactor within every vessel? Or, you know, a, a huge amount of vessels and find the relevant personnel to handle that? Well, very good question, Simeon. I think another one that I'd add to that is, is, is how do you finance it, given, you know, what the estimates are, at least, for ships like this? Do we, are we then looking at different financial models rather than people owning a particular ship 
or we're looking at leasing Probably. with with different investors, whatever whatever it may be. But I think the the, the general view, and I think LR would would concur with that, is that um, there is a lot of research that's been done into nuclear for sure, um, uh, and it, it it does have promise, but it is clearly still some time away, yeah. and there are on an emotional level, let's say, concerns too. Ultimately, someone will have to pay for that transition. And that transition will be a very, very expensive transition going to that zero mark, whether it's nuclear, whether it's methanol, whatever that is, ultimately boils down to whoever pays that bill. And as rightfully said, uh, Clement said, we don't see that appetite going down the full chain for sure. So we can talk about it, but uh, in the end of the day, if nobody's there to pay it, it's still a question mark. Sure. One other thing that I've, I've heard from various ship owners and, and read in, in various interviews is some people saying that uh, there's not enough information regarding alternative fuels, uh, with reference to fleet renewal at least. So we'll wait and see. Um, uh, to be honest, I, I sometimes have the feeling that it's not that there's not enough, there's almost too much information. Um, it's about filtering it, understanding it, and working together to try and find solutions. But how... How do you see it as from the ship owning perspective? Maybe starting with you, Philippos. Do you, do you feel, do you have clarity on what you would like to do? It's just that you feel the timing's not right, or do you also feel you need more information? For the transition, you mean on an investment perspective? Well, uh, yes, for sure. I mean, there are existing things you can do in the fleet that you have, which for us is pretty substantial. We have almost 70 ships on the water in terms of uh, containers, another seven ships. Uh, of Drybox recently acquired for delivered. So yes, it's an issue. So, you know, the answer is twofold. For the existing ships, definitely you have to try and do something about it. And for, you know, younger ships, the retrofit option is also there. But again, the, it's the cost and the sourcing of the fuel. Of course, if it's needed, then your customers want to pay for it. Or not the retrofit per se, but, you know, on a charter basis, that's fine. That's something you can you can explore. Also, a combination of uh, upgrades on your ships with a retrofit is also uh, something you can do with low-friction paints, air bubbles, um, bulbous bows, propellers, etc. So that's one thing on the more eco spaceships that you have on the water. For the other ships, which are still the majority, I would feel, still, again, you can do these upgrades, which we as, we as a company do. Uh, but in the end of the day, I think it's equally important for companies to invest in the people and the R&Ds of the, uh, into R&D's department. We have done so for more than a decade because it's, mo it's very important to actually invest in these retrofits, upgrades, whatever call it, but actually monitoring the changes, monitoring the savings, monitoring the, e the impact and act when that doesn't work is also imperative. So I think that's a third dimension we should put in the mix for sure going forward. Interesting, Philippos. Okay, thank you very much for that. Um, Maybe moving on to, the next, to, to our next question, and I'd like to address this one first of all to Frederick. Um, we've, we've kind of started talking about it already, but how big a role do you think upgrading and retrofitting of existing vessels is going to play in the, um, in the energy transition? So I think the short answer here is that there will be no energy transition if we don't see a significant uh, upgrade efforts on both uh, existing vessels, but actually also on the new buildings that are coming out. Uh, we've talked about it in this panel already. We talked about it in the past panel. Uh, the new fuels are not just around the corner, a long-term solution. And regardless, uh, we will see that the new fuels are much higher priced 
and the density of the fuels will require higher volumes to travel the same distance. So you need to make the vessels as efficient as possible. And maybe if, uh, if we stick to the, to the music references, then I would quote uh, Elvis Presley and say, when it comes to energy efficiencies, it's now or never, because it has to be. And, and what we see from Njord's perspective is that there is a huge gap. And I, I think it's great to hear from Philippos that you have, you've started to look into this and you're looking at your fleet in terms of how you can upgrade it. But we see that there's a huge gap between what you can do on existing vessels and also what is being deployed on new buildings versus what can actually be done. There are more than 30 different technologies, solutions out there. You mentioned a lot of them, Philippos, already, but 30 different things you can do. And I think one of the constraints is probably uh, knowledge uh, and also clarity on the business case. We also talked about uh, financing and Philippos, you mentioned also uh, data insights into what works and what doesn't. And what we've tried to do, at least with, with Njord, is to use all the experience that we've gained uh, in the Maersk fleet over the, the last many years to say, okay, how can you combine several technologies how would they work together? And how can you make a combined holistic approach to energy efficiency solutions uh, that really works? If you do that, if you have that combined approach, then adding the paint, adding the propeller enhancement, looking at air lubrication, looking at wind assisted propulsion, or just as simple as putting LED lights, then you can actually have a high savings figure because you combine your way out of it. And some of the you could say long return on investment technologies will be offset with some of the short return on investment opportunities. And we see at the moment, in average, 12% savings opportunities on the vessels we work with. We've worked on more than 200. And uh, the payback times are typically around a year, year and a half. And we talked about the EU ETS before. We can always discuss who pays. But if you add EU ETS into the return on investment uh, linear, then you would actually see that you can shave off additional months. So there are some good business cases and it's now or never. Okay, thank you very much all for the, uh, also for the further musical reference. Uh, I expect at least one from the rest of the panelists as we go along, so get thinking. No pressure. Um, no pressure, no. Um, but same question, uh, Frederick, first of all, uh, thanks for that, but the same, same question maybe to Simeon at the end. Um, what do you think, uh, how big a role will um, upgrading and retrofitting play in the energy transition? I was it for me or for yes for you, Simeon. Well, I think I think retrofitting will be important where there is economic sense. I mean, changing, for example, the uh, to lead lights a ship that's 20 year old, uh, and then scrapping the ship in, in two years will cause more more damage to the environment than not doing anything. So where, where there is economic sense, yes, I think it will play a vital role. Uh, for example, I mean, we in cooperation with our charterers who might even pay the bill at the end of the day if it makes sense for, uh, for both uh, parties. Uh, we, we, we do upgrades like, uh, as Philippos initially described, uh, you know, changing the propeller to a lighter one, um, painting the, the hull of the ship with uh, silicon paints and stuff like that, which produce five, uh, seven to seven percent uh, less uh, consumption. Uh, are things that uh, are happening and uh, they make a lot of, of sense and uh, they, they, they will happen <clears throat> as we progress. Uh, but as I said, uh, you, you have to be careful. There are many things that you can do just for appearances and this is just a waste of money uh, and you are actually damaging the environment. Uh, it, it's a dynamic process. The market will dictate the decisions at the end of the day because you have to, 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 to forecast a market to see if it makes sense 
to retrofit a ship uh, and spend the next amount of money in retrofitting that, sh that ship. Uh, so it, it's, a, it's a very dynamic decision, uh, but it, yeah, retrofitting uh, will, will play an important role going forward. Uh, Simeon, you, me you mentioned charters there in, that, in those comments. Uh, and do you, I'm just curious, do you, do you see any change with the, the attitude of charters in general? I know it's a generalization, but any change in the attitude or to their, their preparedness to, to help with this? To, uh, are they encouraging you to do it? Or? They are encouraging us, of course, and uh, where there is economic benefit, they are more than willing to participate themselves as well. Mm. Yeah, okay. I can see people nodding here, well, Frederick. Yeah, even to the extent that uh, we've seen charters reaching out to us to push owners. I mean, so I say we really want to do this. We are, we are ready to, to partake in the financing. So, so let's look at what's, uh, what's uh, possible to do and let's get moving. So I think there's been a, a very positive uh, change of mindset. Yeah, okay. Thank you. Uh, Clements, I'm just curious. You obviously have a, a lot of discussion with many, many, many different ship owners. What, what, what's, what's your take? My take in, 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 in short is as long as we don't have abundant green energy, retrofitting is, is, is the key thing. Um, so it's, it's very important. Yeah. I mean, actually, just curiously, the, uh, the Lloyd's Register um, issued a report recently called um, the First Movers Platform. And one, one of the um, slides on that was a, 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 an estimate for different fuel types as to what percentage of the existing fleet will have to be retrofitted um, in some way uh, to achieve the goals that we want to achieve. And uh, depending on the fuel type, but the, the average was, I think, something like 27, 28, 30%. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's a massive undertaking. Um, and it clearly is a lot to do. But what, what you were mentioning before, uh, Frederick, uh, about the various different things that people can do and save a percent here and 2% there, it seems to me a little bit like um, an investment portfolio, a well-balanced investment portfolio, rather than assuming that one particular solution is going to solve everything, that people are you know, spreading their investment across 10, 15, whatever it may be, different things. There's, there's no clear answer to, I mean, so we've been asked the question, so what is the winning energy efficiency technology? There's, there's not a one. It's definitely going to be a combination. And I, I really much agree with Simos on that it, it needs to be a business case, an individual business case for the vessel. So what is your strategy with this vessel? Do you have it on TC for another seven years? Then let's look at what can be done in terms of payback times within that period of time. Does the vessel have a, a poor CII rating and is the end customer pushing for a higher CII rating? Then let's look at what kind of combination will take you from a, a D to a C, for instance, right? given the same operational pattern. But it's going to be very much an individual assessment where you open up your portfolio and then you select from that and say, this will be suited for, for this vessel specifically. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Philippos, I can see you nodding. I mean, yes, there's no one solution for every ship. Uh, every ship has a different profile, uh, trades differently, it has a different age profile as well. It doesn't make sense to do everything the same for all the fleet. As I mentioned before, there are echo ships which have a longer lifespan. You can do more and invest more. You have kind of the middle-range aged ships, which... We, we said, and Seamus touched upon as well, on the things that you can do to retrofit and make them better. And yes, you have to act, and you have to act now. And then, of course, there are the much older ships, which as soon as charter finishes, I mean, if it doesn't make a business sense, it doesn't make any business sense. But definitely to touch upon what the others said on the charter side, I mean, there's 
from our perspective, there is big willingness either to contribute directly in an investment or indirectly by extending uh, charter parties or even uh, commencing new charter parties on a longer basis, basis retrofits that we do. And us as a company would like to control the retrofits we do because we're monitoring exactly, as I said, uh, the performance of such retrofits. And we think that, um, you know, in the end of the day, that's what we provide to our charters. So, um, but the appetite definitely is there from their side as well. Yep. Ultimately, for us, pay the bill, right? Yeah. Just a, a follow-up question to, to anybody who feels like stepping in. Um, going back, I don't know, 15, 20 years, my experience in the shipping industry, at least in Hamburg, was that... Uh, that, that was a period where m many owners believed that, uh, that they could handle more or less everything on their own, that they didn't necessarily need to cooperate too much, that, um, uh, that they were capable in-house of handling the problems that uh, they were facing. I think it's probably fair to say we're living in a, a different era now where the problems or the challenges, let's say, have become so large that uh, it's much harder to follow that isolationist strategy, let's say. But do, do you also feel that... Um, as an owner, for example, um, charterers, anybody involved in it, are more willing to cooperate in common solutions? Because uh, I, I can see that's a change that's happened here. For, sure. for our, cooperation is key, and it didn't start now. It started like a couple of years ago. <laughs> data, data sharing on performance monitoring, people having their own systems. It's not something of today. It's something that has started for quite some time, and it's imperative. And taking into consideration, especially on time charters, the fact that the charter has... Uh, tells the ship where to go and where to trade, actually discussing with the charter and actually optimizing that operational profile in order for the, to, for the ship to achieve the best performance is mandatory and key. Otherwise, the whole thing does not work, despite irrespective of what retrofits or whatever you, what you can do on them. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Philippos. Um, just moving on now to another question. I'd like to address this one to Clements. Um, and it is slightly connected to regulation, and it is probably safe to say that um, we can expect more regulation going forward in the shipping industry. Um, it's a challenging environment, but Clemens, do you see any commercial opportunities that might arise out of what we're facing? Well, I, I, I think um, there's a big jungle uh, out there right now, um, and the whole EU ETS um, as, as one uh, key thing is, is, is a big jungle and there are many opportunities uh, business opportunities around that um, whether you, you, you're trading it um, whether you are also the counterparty risk um, I've been thinking about you know you have your receivables on you know someone's going to pay you in September next year or well, next year in 25 um, uh, you know you have a Chinese charterer um, are you willing to sit on that um, until September 25, uh, if he doesn't pay you right away. Um, when you have MSC, um, then MSC is, is most likely going to pay you. But uh, we discussed it in the break as well. Someone said most likely MSC is going to have about a billion dollar um, worth of, of uh, EUAs um, to, to give out. So it's a, it's a big uh, business and, and, and uh, you know, people are buying um, already uh, the EUAs. Uh, so around um, that, there's a, there's a big um, industry, there's a lot of software uh, which is being developed. So um, there's, there's a lot of opportunities. Um, at the same time, um, when you look at the EU regulations, and particularly coming from Germany, 
uh, our government uh, tries to regulate a lot and thinks we're going to have the green uh, economic boom uh, coming, which I, I, I think is wishful thinking and, and definitely not happening right now. Um, and uh, the question there is a little bit um, if, if this regulation will counter work against this uh, whole nearshoring uh, which is going on. Um, transportation will be more expensive, but um, at the same time as the production and energy here in Europe, particularly Germany, is going to be very expensive, then nearshoring is, is not really the option and that might be good for container shipping in particular. So uh, there's another uh, business opportunity out there. And um, then looking uh, at the broking uh, side, um, we see brokers opening up um, so-called ESG desks um, where they're advising clients, um, and that's going to be for uh, for the brokers a challenge, uh, like it is on research, uh, to make money uh, out of that. Um, if it's just an advisory thing, and and uh, but how on an on a broker not getting active trading um, any EUAs or something, but just on the advisory role, how you make money out of that? Um, so that's another opportunity. Thanks, Clemens. Uh, Frederick, just to follow up to you, I mean, I, I'm guessing, forgive me if, I'm, if you see it differently, but uh, your, your business and your is, is kind of based on commercial opportunities around this area, green technology. What, what, what do you see as the main opportunities from, for your business or from your perspective? Yeah, for, for, the, for the regulatory uh, developments, I mean, from, from my perspective, I mean, what, what it does at the moment, the EU ETS is, is putting an ease into the, the future in terms of what the cost of, of fuel will be. Uh, and, and putting an extra price on it just improves the business case of deploying energy efficiency technologies. And I mean, what we have done is to, to you could say, add that into to the discussions we have with owners and charters saying, this is the pure business case in terms of if this is how the vessel trades, the consumption profile, the fuel you will be saving and the CAPEX investment you're facing. If we then add in and say for EU ETS, you, you trade in Europe, let's say 10, 15% of the time, uh, in 2024, you'll see 40% taxation. 2015, you'll see, or 2025, you'll see 70% and then 100% onwards. So if that's the scenario, then what is your additional savings on EU ETS and how does that Im uh, improve your business case? So we work very much on that. I think what we're seeing with the, with the EU ETS is just the starting point. And if, if IMO does not uh, change their, their approach and, and put some kind of market-based measure on their regulation, then we'll just see an additional regional uh, regulations popping up, very similar to the EUETS. It will be much more complex, but we will see a more globalized uh, taxation on fuel in, in the future, one way or another. Uh, when you take a look at CII, it was briefly discussed in the panel before, then although it's, it's highly debatable, uh, then it's also highly relatable. It's easy to understand in terms of the A2 to, uh, to E uh, ranking, right? So everyone can understand it to the extent that you've really seen studies that some of the resale values of the vessels out there today are slightly linked to the actual uh, CII rating of the vessel, whether that's fair enough, but it's just reality. So I, that's, again, one of the things that we see that uh, as CII rated A has a premium on the resale value. So there's, there's, it's worthwhile from a business case perspective, to improve that. If I may just quickly add on that, on the um, CI rating, um, on the S&P side, uh, it's a nice marketing, and you're right, uh, you know, my, my, my vessel is A rated. Uh, I don't see any premiums, um, really, on, on that. Um, and vessel value has uh, given a presentation of saying the only impact is if you are an E. Mm. 
Um, and also to add on the retrofits, uh, for example, I think also there on the second-hand market, it's difficult um, to get uh, a premium necessarily for the retrofits you did uh, compared to a ship which didn't. Um, they're still pretty much um, you know, the same values. Um, so it's also difficult to, to get money back uh, when you spend, if you sell it quickly. Yep. Okay, makes sense. Thanks, Clements. Um, obviously, uh, new building, part of the fleet renewal program, obviously a big part of it. Um, uh, especially in the dry bulk and the tanker sectors, we, well, we hear a lot about um, very attractive supply demand from an owner's perspective because uh, the order book is, uh, the yards are full for the next three years, etc. Um, all ships are too expensive, but from an owner's perspective, maybe Philippos or Simeon, what, what, what do you think is holding owners back? Should I start? Please feel free. First of all, it is very understandable and logical that the container, uh, the container ships are leading the way in this transition. Uh, they are far bigger polluters and consumers of, uh, of oil, uh, and the existing leg legislation uh, produced the economics to, to, to transition quicker. Now, going forward, I think both tankers and the bulkers will, will follow. We are, uh, we are waiting to see the effects of CII and EXI next year, and also the introduction of uh, uh, EU ETS uh, on the 1st of January next year, and uh, the fuel uh, EU one year later. Uh, I think those, uh, those two events, along with the, the effects of uh, CII and EXI, will trigger uh, orders, far, far more orders than uh, we see today. Um, and first of all, this will happen because the economics will make sense. But our feeling is that uh, the market will, will get to the point uh, where such deals make economic sense. We are hearing lately uh, if, if some dry bulk deals uh, involving methanol orders, uh, but there is not much information around on what kind of uh, employment they have secured, probably from utility companies in Japan or other areas uh, in the world. Uh, but uh, as soon as we see the economics, we will be able to tell more. But, uh, but my, my feeling is that uh, very soon we will see uh, a huge uh, amount of ordering in both, uh, uh, mostly in bulkers, because the, 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 the markets are in a different part of the cycle. But uh, the tankers will follow as well. Uh, I think we will soon have the economics to trigger a wave of, uh, of vessels uh, ordering in both these sectors. Do you agree, Philippos? Yeah, I mean, I agree uh, fully with what uh, was said before. Uh, it's actually, it's not that they didn't really want to order, it's just that all the slots were pretty much occupied by the liner companies or liner-related tonnage, and we were no exception. We have 10 ships on order. Um, you know, so, uh, and usually shipping kind of repeats itself and the cycles repeat themselves. Sometimes people say that we don't learn uh, from our own mistakes. As soon as a market picks up, as soon as you have supply demand balance, then again, you have new ordering and new ordering, uh, which breaks down that balance until you get back to balance and so forth and so forth. Prices is still up. You, we already see appetite for dry bulk and tanker orders, which will keep pricing up. Uh, substantially and what other one more factor that is in now that wasn't in other cycles is exactly this energy transition so people have one more reason to do it mm -hmm. than before it's not purely f financially driven it has more attributes to it so definitely i think this will continue uh, however we have to always understand that there's a time 
you, there's so much time ahead you can look, right? And as soon as a slot is there and it's 2023 and the next slot is 2027, then that uncertainty gap makes any investment a bit difficult. I think except from, if you're from, an end user, sorry. If, except if you're an end user, which then it's, a, it's kind of a different thing. But sure. for owners like us, speculative ordering, that's a bit tricky. I, I, I think um, um, I disagree a little bit on the um, on the order uh, book. I think um, bulk has been ordered a lot. Uh, we have an eight percent uh, order book um, uh, in the bulk market. It's eleven percent for Panamax Camsamax size. Um, that's not small. Um, Hendy's Super Ultramax is nine percent. So uh, it's just the capes, uh, which are five percent. So. Uh, I understand why Danos is, is on the Cape side. Uh, so I think that's um, there's a misconception. Um, I think bulk has been ordered a lot, and the the tanker wave, which is supposed to come, it's it's full there. If you just read um, the third quarter report from Yang Sejiang, which just was came out and was published because they're listed, um, and they took 400 million dollars worth of tanker orders last quarter, and um, they have I think 24 MRs uh, on order. Um, uh, you know, and then Yangtze Yang is not not known as the main uh, MR uh, yard in China, so I wonder how many uh, orders the other yards are taking. And product tankers themselves, um, I just looked it up, is nine point nine percent product tankers order book. So I think uh, the order books in bulk and tank um, are sizable, and particularly tank is growing at the moment. Okay, Clements, thanks for that. We're almost out of time, but we do have time for one more question. And I'd just like each of the panel, if you, figuratively speaking, to close your eyes and imagine that you were president of the European Commission for a day. What would you change? Frederick, would you like to start? Yeah, that's easy. I... Uh, hmm. And by the way, no pressure again, we're still missing a music reference for the rest of the panel, right? So, but I'll leave that for the panel to just decide. Uh, no, I, so I think actually, mm, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't change. I think what, what has happened with the, with the EU ETS being implemented or being uh, uh, imposed on shipping, I think we're looking into the future of a higher price on, on fuel. And I think we're on the right path. This is the push that we need. Uh, it will resolve into something, as I mentioned before. So I, I would stay firm uh, and watch the developments accordingly here. Okay, watch and wait. Clements, what do you think? Uh, if I would be uh, president of the EU, um, you would uh, leave Genie out of the bottle. Um, so there you are, <laughs> with your music reference. Um, and uh, I, would, I would look into um, the segment. I think the, the use of green energy for shipping is not very efficient. Uh, you lose around about 8% of the green energy once you have methanol in your ship. Um, and it's nine times as efficient to use the green energy to replace coal or five times as efficient to put it on the car, because you don't have to convert um, the green power into hydrogen and then into methanol. So I would find a way how I can, uh, if, if my green energy I would consume, I put it otherwise in, into coal or, or car powers, uh, how I can get a multiple uh, out of it if it's just twice um, the CO2 reduction uh, I would, would uh, achieve with my ship. That's what I would be looking into. Thanks, Clemens. What about Simeon? Well, I had a different reply, but hearing Clemens, I fully agree with him. But because I am a politician now and I have to get voted, I have only, to... Only for a day, just for one day. I have to, to, I have to give you a sellable reply. 
So what I would do is I would try to persuade IMO to adopt EU legislation, which is anyway the, the most uh, uh, effective, uh, at least it's leading today the, what, what the world is doing in the, in, in the, in the entire industry. Uh, but I think what Clement says is very correct. I mean, the maritime industry could just increase its share of polluting uh, without causing any damage and focus on other industries that indeed would have a much more significant effect in our environment. Thank you, Simeon. One more, can, one more can I add? I mean, I think everybody said everything. Uh, my song would be Satisfaction from the Rolling Stones. Ah, there we go. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we just have to satisfy the needs and the goals set already. I agree with, I agree with Frederick. We have, to, uh, we have to push towards that kind of timeline and goals, and definitely I agree with Simos. We need a holistic worldwide approach. Definitely we're going to end up kind of in a shit show between different regulations going around the world, which will have the same thing, but differently applied. Uh, definitely we need the IMO to step up on that and to have a uniform approach, which will work across the board. So that's what I think. Thank you very much, Philippos, and thank you very much to everybody. With true German precision, although none of us are German, we've done, we've done what they call a Punktlandung. Um, so thank you very much for everybody. Uh, it's a great discussion, and I hope that maybe it can be continued during the day. Thank you very much. Thank you, Colin. <laughs> <laughs>